This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So I recently had surgery, and while there, I was reminded of how much I don't like waiting rooms. If you're like me, you have been uh, to the doctor's office and you've waited in a waiting room, and there are any number of emotions that you begin to feel. Your mind starts to race. It's hard to figure out what to do. Sometimes there are magazines that have subjects of which you just don't care. There are things on, on TV that you, I, you probably don't care. I feel like I'm always seeing some type of gossipy show that's always on, and I just don't care. So your mind is looking for something to cling on to. Not to mention all of the anxiety you may be feeling, depending on what it is, what the reason is for your visit. It can be really hard to know what to do while you wait. As Pastor Jen just preached last Sunday, it is very difficult uh, at times to know where our heart should be, where our mind should be uh, while we wait. And what we often overlook or what it's, it's easy to overlook is that there are so many concerns that you're having while you're in the waiting room. That waiting room is a place where some of the worst possibilities start to course through your mind. Some of the worst outcomes could, could potentially happen. You're hoping not to get certain news based on why you're there. You're hoping that uh, you'll, not only, not only you're hoping for good news, you're also hoping that uh, the means by which to pay for this visit or whatever surgery might need to take place, you hope that that is in place. So your mind starts racing. And I've looked at several different uh, places where people come up with fun games to play. Sometimes you try to observe people, listen to their conversation without them knowing that you're listening. I've heard some of the weirdest phone conversations in my life in a waiting room. And you just find ways to distract yourself because you're so worried, you're so concerned. I mean, think about it. You go to a waiting room, you're in the reception room, and once you get there, it's this large, bright space with these picture windows, pale blue walls, comfortable chairs. Everybody's wearing street clothes. Friends and spouses are checking their phones. Then a nurse calls your name. Then you move into that second tier, inner sanctum, uh, this smaller, windowless room that's patients only. Everyone there, they're in gowns and you're surrounded by pamphlets and posters about some of the worst possible things that could befall you. This is where I was recently. And by the way, those gowns are not meant for dignity. Those gowns are not meant to make you feel good. So the worst possible thing, you've got all of your concerns and your own bodily integrity is compromised. It's just an uncomfortable place to be. One person put it this way. You feel your heartbeat. You're looking at your cell phone to see what time it is. You're very acutely aware of the passage of time and people get really frustrated. If you don't know how long it is going to be, you have no uh, management of expectations. It's like you're in a prison and you don't know when you're going to be let out. This is ultimately where uh, for people of faith 
matters of spiritual, uh, for, for matters of spiritual things and spiritual issues. This is where people who follow Jesus uh, find themselves. The people of, who have followed God found themselves here while waiting for God to show up the first time. And we are still in that same place while waiting for God to return a second time. As Jim brought up last week, when we have just come out of this season of Advent, we're reminded of a time where the people of God had been waiting for 400 years for him to show up and right what was wrong. In many ways, the people of God had been waiting in a waiting room for 400 years, waiting for certain things to be made right, waiting for hope to be restored, waiting for the things that have been broken to be mended. They've been waiting all of this time, and you've got uh, John showing up on the scene, 400 years of God being silent, and God uses this kind of cantankerous, almost bitter, angry, almost looks like this bitter, angry man that's saying these really harsh things uh, to them. Why? Because they've been waiting for a really long time. And waiting starts to do things with your mind because here's what waiting does. It makes you acutely aware of the things that are broken around you. A survey by one group said the average wait time for U.S. patients is about 20 minutes, which is exactly how long they typically spend in the exa- in the exam room. Uh, another study showed most people consider waiting to be the worst thing about going to the doctor. 63% of patients surveyed said it was the most stressful aspect of their visit. And here's what's even more interesting. The waiting experience, the wait room experience, it's actually not the same for everyone. There are places, waiting rooms, there are places in which inequalities and privileges are reproduced. One researcher found. Here's an example. Uh, White people don't wait as long as black and Hispanic people. People of high uh, socioeconomic status have shorter wait times compared to people in low socioeconomic statuses. And women wait more often in these spaces than men. So these seemingly innocuous places where we think nothing happens uh, have a lot happening within them. There's a lot happening in your mind while you're waiting. You've got one person who is extremely stressed about their health issues, and they're also stressed about how they're going to pay. What if they are uninsured or underinsured? And there's another person next to them has the same health concerns, but it's not added on top of how am I going to pay for this? What if I go into crazy debt? What if this makes it harder for me to take care of other bills because I have this medical problem? In other words, waiting rooms help you identify all the ways that things are are unequal. They help you identify all the ways that things are broken. And in many ways, this is who we are when we are waiting on God. And it's hard because while you're waiting for God to show up, while you're waiting for God to fix things, you spend a lot of time observing all the ways that you need his kingdom to be made manifest. And this is because you're either on the receiving end of pain, of heartbreak, of injustice, or of loss, or it's because you might be the purveyor of pain, heartbreak, injustice, or loss. And most of the time, you're probably both. Most of the time, We are probably both. We have both of these anxieties hanging at the same time. And in the same way, in the same way that the Jewish people were in that waiting room for 400 years, waiting for the first advent, 
We are in the waiting room waiting for the second advent. And we're told to do one thing in this waiting room. Luke records John the Baptist telling us to do one thing while we wait in the waiting room. And that is bear the fruit of repentance. Ultimately, what we're going to see here is God is saying, here's how you repent in the waiting room. Yes, you can, you can find ways to distract yourself in the waiting room. You can find ways to sit and overhear and eavesdrop and be nosy and judge other people in the waiting room. You can find ways to pat yourself, uh, yourselves on the back for saying, I'm so glad that I put myself in a position where I can afford to get whatever it is I have coming in this medical procedure and feel good about that and kind of be puffed up. You can spend time actually just lamenting, lamenting all the ways that you don't have what might be necessary to pay for that. You could do any of those things. But what God says is, what John the Baptist reminds us, is that the most important thing to do while we wait is to bear fruit of repentance. And so in our text today, we're going to look at what it means to bear the fruit of repentance. Ultimately, we're going to look at a tale of two repentances a false repentance and a true repentance because only the true repentance is what sustains us while waiting in the waiting room. So let's look at Luke chapter three. We're going to start at verse seven and end at verse 14. And keep in mind as the first few verses of this chapter, just kind of pointing out who John the Baptist was. Remember, it's been 400 years. People have not heard from God in 400 years. And after 400 years, he brings this man to the crowds to speak to them. He's been the one that's been crying out in the wilderness. He's been the one that's been preparing the way of the Lord. So keep in mind real quick before we jump in how interesting it is that in order to prepare for God to show up, there's a repairing that has to happen. In other words, your reparation is your preparation for God to show up. That's ultimately what John the Baptist shows. So let's look at what reparation and preparation looks like in order to wait in the waiting room faithfully in a way that is in accordance with real repentance. Here's John the Baptist in verse seven. He then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What then should we do? The crowds were asking him. And he replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same tax collectors also came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He told them, don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. Some soldiers also questioned him, what should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is, this is such a an interesting passage for me because uh, most of the time when we talk about repentance, the focus is intensely and almost exclusively inward. 
Even if it's, even if it's uh, about maybe stopping doing something that's harming someone, it's still ultimately focused on what's happening on the inside for you, right? It's like, I want to make sure that if I'm going to repent, what repentance looks like is some of these spiritual disciplines I need to be doing. So I know that I'm repentant if I'm really in my Bible often. I know that I'm repentant if I'm regularly praying. I know that I'm repentant if I'm regularly meeting with my accountability groups, right? I must be repentant because all of these activities in which I'm involved are pretty frequent and I'm pretty faithful at showing up there. So that's what repentance must look like for me. And here we're seeing something a little different. Here we're seeing something uh, quite different from what they were expecting to hear from John the Baptist. And ultimately, he separates his statement here uh, uh, between an example of what false repentance looks like and then an example of what true repentance looks like. So look at the first statement he makes. Okay, You look at the first statement, verse 7 again. He says, here they are. They're waiting to hear from God. They've all shown up to be baptized. That was not uncommon during that time. By the way, it wasn't uh, just specific to, uh, uh, Jew, uh, to Jewish communities, and it wasn't just specific to later Christian communities. The practice of baptism, you saw a lot of Middle Eastern groups of faith, organized religions do that. It really was showing, here's who I am aligned with. This is the group, this is the, the, the organized kind of religious group uh, in which I am uh, a part. And so it wasn't uncommon to see that. When, when I've been to Israel, you'll see several baptismal pools of varying sizes. Some you can tell they were dunked in. Some you can tell they were sprinkled or poured over. It's just varying depths, right? But it wasn't uncommon. And so when they see John the Baptist, this guy popping up, they're showing up. Why? Because they hadn't seen a prophet in 400 years. They hadn't heard God. They'd heard about people doing this stuff as a part of being a part of the Hebrew faith, but they hadn't seen it in centuries. So they're excited. They showed up. They were present. And in, in many ways, they would think, I've done my part. I'm here. I could have been anywhere else, but I'm here. And I'm clearly excited. I'm clearly wanting to hear something from God. So my willingness is there and my presence is there. Isn't that enough? Now, with all of that as the backdrop, John the Baptist looks at them. He doesn't start with a greeting. He doesn't start with, I'm so happy you guys made it out. He doesn't start with what I just said. You guys could have been anywhere and you're here. And I just want to thank you for giving up the other options just to show up here. A lot of times we do that just to make each other feel better out of all the places you could have been here, out of all the sermons you could be watching. You're watching this one. It's almost, I mean, we're thankful, but it's almost like, yeah, but that really isn't the thing, right? That isn't the transformative thing. Right. In many ways, the best that can be without any transformation is just performative. So they show up and they said, hey, we performed our part. We showed up and we're here and and we're listening. And he doesn't say anything else other than and this is very cutting. He just says brood of vipers. In other words, baby snakes. Y'all are a bunch of baby snakes. That's his hello. That's his greeting. And then he says, sarcastically, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? That's such a, a curious thing to say, because they showed up hoping to hear from God. And in response, they get, who in the world told you, taught you, convinced you to flee the wrath of God, to run away from uh, the coming wrath? Who told you that was even possible? 
And then he hits them with, therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. So, so ultimately, he starts with a sarcastic rebuke. Then he moves to a charge to bear fruit. He, I love John the Baptist because ultimately he's, he, he doesn't really want to deal with the pleasantries. He doesn't want to deal with a lot of the, the ways that we communicate, all of the window dressing, all of the extra stuff. He doesn't really want to do any of that. He wants to jump right in. Hey, you guys have been faking for a really long time. You guys have failed to, to bear the kingdom of God in your bodies, in your lives, in your relationships, in society, in your community. You haven't been doing that for 400 years and you show up now. I'm going to show up with the very message that God has been wanting you all to hear for 400 years. Where have you been all of this time? Why have you failed to embody me, embody me well? Why have you failed to image me well? Why have you forgotten that when you don't image me well, I get angry? My wrath is still a thing. It's, it's, it's sad, but it's true that nowadays, in order to be able to be more compelling as a preacher or to be compelling as a teacher of the Bible or compelling as a church, is to talk about everything but God's wrath. And yet John the Baptist starts with it. You forget that, yes, God is a God of love, but God is also a God of wrath. And his wrath is very specific. All the ways that you don't image God well makes him angry because we're here to reflect him, not ourselves. And so God gets mad. God gets angry. And the only way to, to, to assuage his anger is to bear fruit that shows that we are repentant, that shows that there's a real change. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But ultimately, what John the Baptist is, is bringing before them is, yeah, you guys haven't heard from God in 400 years. Here's what he has to say. Your lives have looked like baby snakes. And the only way to change that is to genuinely repent. And then John the Baptist already anticipates what they would say and likely what we would say. Because let's just be real. If somebody comes to you, and says, and you know, you've been waiting for a thing. A lot of us are those folks. We're like, I'm just waiting on God to speak. I'm waiting on God to, to do something. I can't understand why so many of these things are happening in my life this way. Where is God? I thought that he heard me. I prayed this thing. I did this thing. I showed up. I've been given. I've been tithing. I've been praying. What do I need to do? And in many ways, it can be very frustrating because if you know that ultimately, if you've been telling somebody to do one thing all this time, and they do everything but that one thing. And then they come to you and go, what should we, what, what's going on? I want to hear from you. What, what should we be doing? And you're like, why have you been ignoring this thing this entire time? Why have you failed to do the one thing that I told you would show and re reflect me most, most perfectly? Why have you not done that? Now, how are you prone to react when somebody comes to you and says, hey, uh, what you're doing right now, all this extra stuff that you're doing, you're missing the main point because God's heart still isn't on display here. Are you, are you prone to get defensive? Are you prone to get angry? Are you prone to just maybe do the passive aggressive thing where you don't say anything, you just nod, act like you're listening, and then just tap out and don't ever talk again or, or, or vanish? Maybe you just stop showing up Maybe you're like, I showed up, but I didn't expect to hear that. I was expecting to feel a little bit better. But after hearing what you said, I feel a lot worse. I don't think I want to feel that anymore. So I think I'm going to go in a different direction now. 
That's how a lot of us are prone to, re to, to react. Or what we might do is, in our defensiveness, we'll go, no, that can't possibly be true what you're saying about me because look at my record. L look at what I come from. Look at who I come from. I come from a family of God-fearing people. I come from a family who have done a lot of good godly things. So that can't possibly be about me because I come from good stock. And John the Baptist knows that's where we'll go. And so he says, hey, by the way, don't bring up your DNA. Don't bring up your family tree. Don't bring up your family history. Because God can raise up anybody that's his. And other, he's talking to, these, to the Jews because ultimately they know, hey, we're, we come from Abraham. And Abraham was God's man. This was the, pro the great prophet of God. We honor Moses. We honor Abraham. These are folks that are our kinsmen. These are our forefathers. And they have begun, after 400 years, you start losing what is the most important thing in God's economy. And so you start to think that their, their root, their DNA roots would be stronger than their spiritual fruit. And what he's ultimately showing is that the, the, the fruit of repentance is much stronger than the root of your family narrative. If you are trusting that you come from good stock, you are trusting in the wrong thing. Now this plays out a little differently for us. I recently talked to someone uh, who had reached out about some issues with their family and they had said, you know, I, I, I really struggle with this idea of a kind of family pride. And what do I mean by family pride? It's really easy to build a sense of confidence and a sense of solidarity within families. How do we do that? By saying, you know, in my family, we're Fords. Ford men don't act this way. You're a, you're a Smith. Smith women don't behave this way. You're a Jones, and, and, and as a Jones, in the Jones family, we don't tolerate this kind of thing, right? Ultimately, that family pride piece, it almost makes us go, I don't do these things. Why? Because I'm a Ford. I'm a Jones. I'm a Smith. I'm, I'm this kind of, I come from such good stock that we are above doing these kinds of things. Incredible amount of pride that plays into that. Because we think that the, the primary thing that undergirds our ability to do right is in our, in our genes. And, and what, what John the Baptist is showing is, your genetic pool means nothing to God. It doesn't mean he doesn't love your family. It doesn't mean that he doesn't want to see family serve God together. But ultimately, he's saying, as we said before, your genetic roots will always pale in comparison to your spiritual fruit. And so he looks at them and he says, don't come to me uh, with all of this. Well, we come from Abraham, so don't, don't tell, us, tell us that. We've got to be righteous. We've got to be God's people because we come from Abraham. And he says, you realize that God can raise up family. He can raise up his own children from stones. He can set DNA aside. If he has to recreate new DNA to connect to Abraham, he can. So you need to set that aside because that will value you nothing. That will profit you nothing. John the Baptist knows exactly, because God knows exactly what's going to happen in our heart. He knows the contents of our heart. He knows how we're prone to react. So he starts, don't bring me your, your, your family history. Don't come to me with your DNA, because none of that is going to matter. I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Then he says, the axe is already at the root of the trees. The family tree you keep trusting in, God is about cutting it down because it's become an idol for you. And you trust in that idol and that idol will fail you 
every time. So you're trusting the fact that you come from this good, godly, spiritual family lineage or what have you. I'm cutting that down because you're trusting that and you're not trusting me. If you were trusting me, then you would be following me and your life would bear fruit that testifies to that. But it isn't. And so he says, this is where the judgment piece comes in. The ax is ready. It's at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. We cannot talk about God's love for us without talking about his wrath when we don't bear his image well. We can't talk about one without the other. Ultimately, God is saying, and he uses this phrase that they would have understood because anytime you had something that was useless, when you cut down things that you couldn't use, you would just set it off into the fire. It wasn't worth anything. It was useless. It was worthless. And so he's using this language to show you all don't realize just the sense of urgency that's at play here. God is so jealous of his image that when false images of him are on display, he doesn't want to see it. And he gets angry. And so when the crowd heard this, hear what the crowds do. They, they hear this and they, they're, so they've been reminded, right? They've been warned about trusting their heritage. They've been warned about how important it was to bear real fruit. They've been reminded of imminent judgment. And then they respond with, I think, the first heart posture of real repentance, not the false repentance, not this idea of false repentance that shows like, uh, I need to go back to my family values. That would have been false repentance. I need to go back to what mom and dad taught me. That would be false repentance. Or I need to just, I feel bad about what's been said and I don't want to feel bad anymore. So let me do what's necessary so that I don't feel bad. That would be false repentance. So they don't, they, it's interesting. This crowd on some level, their hearts do become soft because look at how they respond. After he says all of this stuff to them, verse 10, what then should we do? The crowds were asking them. I think that's one of the most humble postures that we can have. You've heard it so many times here at Icon. I say it often that this definition of humility is the ability to say, I would never put it past me. Well, if you're taking that posture, if somebody says, hey, here, God isn't really on display here. Here, God really won't be pleased here. Here, God's heart is broken by something you do that you think that you've said, a way that you live. God's heart is broken by that. The first response isn't, they can't be possible because my mom and dad always praised me for this, or they can't be possible because I come from X, Y, and Z, or I've done so much. The posture is, well, I wouldn't put that past me. What should I do? That's what a humble person says. What should I do? I think it's interesting that uh, they didn't just start with also just what should I think? What should I profess? What should I believe? Because when they say, what should we do? You could expect John to say, well, eat locusts and wild honey like I do. Live like I do. A lot of times that's what, where people will go. It's dangerous sometimes when you're in a relationship, maybe even a discipleship type relationship or a small group relationship or a church relationship where uh, the goal is to be like the leader, Right. Let me be like that person that I look up to. Let me be like that, my favorite Bible teacher that I read online or that I listen to via a podcast. Let me almost make myself into a clone of them so that therefore I will become more righteous. John the Baptist could have told them to do the same. 
He could have said, listen, um, uh, separate yourself like I do. Eat locusts and wild honey like I do. He could have said, keep the rituals and, 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 and all of the rituals in the temple. Keep those things faithfully. In other words, let your private worship look like mine and even let your public church worship look like mine. There are plenty of folks who have tried to do that. Plenty of folks who are like, I just want to uh, be and talk like my pastor or be and talk like my small group leader. If I can be more like them, then God will see me as holy. But his answers here, John the Baptist answers here, right? This is the last prophet that we have before Jesus. And here, John the Baptist, his answers are refreshingly simple, refreshingly practical. Every answer relates to this second table of the law. The second part of the law, relationship with our neighbor. This is how John puts it in 1 John. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. John the Baptist is saying that the fruits of repentance will be seen in the way that we relate to one another, especially in the particular station in life where we live and where we work. It's exactly what uh, Jen uh, preached last week, right? We, uh, what it means to wait where we occupy. What does it mean? Wherever we're occupying, wherever we live, wherever we work, this is where we're meant to bear the fruit of repentance. So when they asked him this, what should we do? Something had to be cut because they're like, it's been 400 years and maybe we've forgotten what it means to worship God and serve him well. And you calling us out, we're not going to respond with defensiveness. We're going to respond with a willingness, with humility, a desire to do what's right, to, to right the wrongs, to fix what's been broken. What should we do? And how does he answer? Verse 11, he replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same. So here you have people showing up, possibly hundreds, thousands of people cut to the heart by John's call for real repentance, the works of repentance. And these are folks, before we get to the professional folks, the tax collectors and the soldiers, he's just talking to the, 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 the common folk, if you will. And he says, uh, if you have two shirts or tunics in the old King James would say, and ultimately, what, what that really is a call to is back then, it wasn't uncommon for you to have multiple layers of clothing, depending on the, the weather, depending on the temperature. And so you would have kind of like an undershirt, an under tunic under your heavier coat. And for people who had more, they would have multiple tunics. Sometimes people would be wearing more layers than they even needed. And so that's something you can just observe. And John is going, for those of you that have abundance and you're just holding on to the abundance while you see people who are in need. You don't just walk by them. You offer what you have to make sure that they have what they need. It, it should be a pretty basic thing. If I see that you have a need, then I'm going to make sure I give of what I have in order to make sure that you are taken care of, to make sure that you can thrive, not even just thrive, to make sure you can, on a basic level, survive. And when, when uh, John the Baptist looks at them and he says, he's been observing, he sees, I see that some of y'all have a lot and you're content with walking by the people who have a little. And you know that that's something that we can fall into really easily, especially here in America. 
because of our views, whether it's our views of economics and because we might have the view, whether right or wrong, this isn't even a, a necessarily a, you know, a, a referendum on what economic system is best. I can tell you this, we have to be very careful by assuming that certain, a certain economic system has been baptized in the red, white, and blue blood of Jesus. We gotta be very careful about that because there is no economic system that is a Christian economic system. Let's just be real, it, it's not. So if that's become our idol, guess what? We've learned how to justify not loving others well. What do I mean? Well, if you think that ultimately uh, what we need to do is make sure that everybody is self-interested and if everybody is self-interested, then everybody will be provided for. Well, now you have a built-in justification for why you can overlook the people who don't have. Because if they don't have, they must have been lazy. They must not have uh, worked hard. They must not have taken advantage of the same opportunities that I had. Clearly they had the same opportunities and they haven't taken advantage of them. So that's the point. And then we'll bring up passages of scripture as if these are good things. If you don't work, you don't eat or the, the poor will, will be with you always because many of these things are observations and not prescriptions, right? But it's easy to look at that and go, you know what? I don't have to, I don't have to give my tunic because they didn't work hard enough to get their own. And I don't want to have to be giving handouts to people because that's going to encourage them to not work. You realize that is not what the scripture says. John doesn't even qualify his statement for why, how, or when to give the tunic. The only, the only qualifier for what to do when people are in need is just notice that they have a need. That's it. They have a need. You have the ability to meet that need. Go meet it. No other justification or qualifier necessary. So if we use our economics to determine whether or not to love our neighbor, our economics need to be revisited. They may even need, we need to kind of back away from them. So he starts with that. Then he says, uh, whoever has food, do likewise. Again, if, if you know that you have an abundance, if you know that you have the ability to meet the needs of someone else, it should be a no brainer. I'm going to be about making sure that people have what they need. There are any number of reasons why a person can be where they are. Let me not presuppose to know what those things are. Because ultimately, when we do that, we're just looking for excuses to not love people. And John the Baptist is saying, y'all been good at that already. You've been good at not loving people. That's who we are at our, at our core. John the Baptist is pointing out something that we've got to just accept. Get away from the idea that your heart is basically good. Get away from the idea that your, your heart is, is, is naturally about caring for other people. Scrap that. Almost assume that your posture is going to begin with not wanting to love other people to make sure that you root out the areas that need to be fixed. So, so, so again, if you're looking for excuses why you don't need to give your uh, clothing or your food or what have you. Back then, those were huge, huge needs. We can fill up a list of other types of needs right now. What does it mean then? Education, healthcare, the ability to make sure that people can live well in the country that we, in which we live. You can fill up a whole list of things that people don't have that we may have and that we have the ability to help bring about. And we make excuses for why we don't have to love them well. That's something of which to be repented. So John the Baptist calls them out. I think it's interesting too, that again, when we talk about repentance, when have we ever really thought about repentance in terms of making sure that justice is meted out for those who don't have it? That's what repentance looks like to John. 
Then he says, now he, he moves from the common folk. <clears throat> he moves from the people who aren't necessarily the professionals. <clears throat> and then says to the tax collectors, verse 12. So the tax collectors also came to the baptized, to the baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? <clears throat> and he told them, don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. Now here, <clears throat> this is something that we have to understand specifically because back then, people who were going to help bring the taxes to Rome, they would often bid <clears throat> for the job of being a tax collector. So they would go to the people of Rome, they would go to the leadership in Rome, and they would say, uh, hey, I'm going to, I'm willing to give you this much in taxes, and I can go extract that from the people. And then Rome would figure out whoever had the highest bid <clears throat> and say, oh, this tax collector says they can bring this much. Great, if you can bring that much to us, you get the contract. So that's what would happen. And then because they won the contract, they still wanted to make money. So if I told them, I'll get you $1,000, great, I've got to go charge people $1,000. But then they don't make any money on it. So they would go and charge above and beyond even the $1,000 so that they could then line their own pockets, which is why people in the Jewish community couldn't stand tax collectors. Because they thought, you guys are just, you, you already start out with a really, really high tax number so that you can win the contract, and then you charge even more than that in order to line your pockets, and you end up defrauding the rest of your people. So if you were a tax collector, and you were Jewish, there was no way you were well-respected. You were looked down upon, and you were looked at as wicked. And these are the folks who are listening to John the Baptist. And it's weird, they're like, okay, you're talking about people who are gonna face the judgment of God for not being repentant. We've just been trying to survive. We're just trying to make it. This is how, this is the lay of the land. It's a survival of the fittest. Very Darwinian here. We were smart enough to know how to build a business in order to be able to make money. These folks over here, they weren't smart enough to know or, or uh, they didn't have the abilities or the privileges to be able to take advantage of certain opportunities. So they don't have the same businesses that we have. They didn't have it in them to do it, we did. And we took advantage of an opportunity. How can you get angry for us taking advantage of an opportunity? That probably was their mindset, which is a lot of ours today. And then they hear John the Baptist say, your ability to care for others is, is the chief litmus test for whether or not you live a repentant life. And y'all have not shown that. So the, the, the common folk heard it and went, what should we do? Now the tax collectors will go, well, well what about us? We, we, we know that we, if we're honest, we've been guilty of not loving. We haven't given people. We take from people. We don't give to people. So they come up. What should we do? John the Baptist, you're saying some hard stuff here. What about us tax collectors? And that's when he says, don't defraud. That's when he says, uh, uh, don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. Now, there's a lot in that, right? Because there's probably question marks that need to be had. How do you uh, determine what's been authorized? If it's something that Rome has exacted alone without you adding anything, okay. You don't have any choice in the matter. A lot to be said about what does that mean? The difference, real quick, we have a difference here because we actually have a say in what we're even taxed. They didn't. We have a say in how we're governed. They didn't. So there's even more for us to be stewarding than even they had. But given that this is the situation, he's ultimately saying to, to the tax collectors, only exact what has been authorized. Stop trying to line your pockets by taking advantage of people who don't have the same privileges. Can you see how that is a part of repentance? 
Again, there's this push for real justice when there has been no justice. And he says, don't collect anymore. Don't, don't do that. So there's the, that's what fruit of repentance looks like for tax collectors. You've got uh, these folks who basically were shakedown artists. They would shake down from the population, whatever Rome required. And then it became this lucrative racket and they couldn't hide behind their good business sense anymore. They couldn't hide behind their entrepreneurial spirit anymore. They couldn't hide behind their ability to just be about supply and demand anymore. They had to go beyond that and go, is what I'm doing helpful in building a thriving community for the people in this city? Is what I'm doing actually bringing life to people or is it actually restricting their life or is it even possibly bringing death? Then finally, you had another group who were there who also knows when you're hearing truth and it hits you and you get defensive before you push it away, be ready to thank God for that, because that's where God is pressing into your heart to say, hey, this is you. You should be able to hear this and go, oh, man, I'm getting defensive. This might be me. This might be me. You've heard me quote my grandmother many times when she would say, only a hit dog a holler. Something comes out and you start to feel kind of like, oh, I'm feeling really bad about it. You're probably that hit dog. And it's not a bad thing because now you're like, I now am aware of something that legitimately needs to change. This is a blessing. This is the grace of God to us. So finally, these soldiers hear the same thing. They're hearing this and they're seeing what's happening. The people have been told what they need to do. The tax collectors who aren't loved by the people are told what they need to do. And the soldiers, they do the same thing. Some soldiers question in verse 14, what should we do? And he said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Now, what do we know about this? Well, again, if you're a Roman soldier and you wanted to be able to make extra money, you knew when you went into these cities and you went into these villages, these were people who had no way of representing themselves. They had no way to advocate for themselves. These, it wasn't just easy. They, they didn't have court appointed lawyers for these folks. So if soldiers decided to just come and just have their way with the people in any respect, they could do it and really have no real recourse. If they wanted to be able to come and just say, hey, listen, uh, you guys, we're here to protect. But if you really want real protection, you're going to have to pay something extra. Almost like kind of like the old mafia movies. They'd walk in and go, it'd be a shame if somebody came and, and, and broke your windows. It'd be a shame if somebody came and messed up the tables in your restaurant. It'd be nice if you had some protection, wouldn't it? And they start shaking you down and convincing you, if you really want real protection, you're probably going to need to pay X, Y, and Z. That's who these soldiers were. And so what John the Baptist is saying is, again, orient yourself not around your, yourself primarily, Orient yourself around God and his image bearers. Care about what happens to them first. Stop thinking about lining your own pockets. Be content with your wages and what he means there. Some people have used that again to almost unfairly get mad at people when they're advocating for more money or labor disputes or whatever. This is not really that, okay? This is really just saying where you are, don't get to the point where you're discontent with your wages so that you're willing to defraud others in order to line your pockets. In order for you to get justice, it should never mean depriving it from someone else. The moment you do that, you are acting in an unrepentant fashion and the truth of God is no longer in you. So he's talking to the people, 
bear fruit of repentance. He talks to the tax collectors, bear fruit of repentance. He talks to the soldiers, bear fruit of repentance. He tells all these folks, collectors, soldiers, private citizens, that the glorious fruit of repentance include a lot of just what's ordinary. What's ordinary? Cease from extorting people, cease from bullying people, cease from grumbling and complaining about your wages, share with the destitute the surplus of what you have, clothing, food, and anything else. He doesn't ask for anything explicitly religious like fasting or temple sacrifices. That's interesting. Again, those aren't bad things. But he doesn't do that. I find that in many ways, depending on the church backgrounds from which we come, it's easy to get into those heavily internal practices. The first thing you need to do is get on your face and go into consecration and go into fasting and praying and going. And that's nice. And that's not even necessarily bad, but he doesn't start with that because the assumption is if I do that, then all of a sudden my actions will change, right? History says that's just not true. I wish I could say that. I used to say that. History says that's just not true. Ultimately, do justice. Don't pray about justice first. I mean, we can pray about it, but he doesn't tell you to pray about it first. Go and do justice. Go and do right. Go and love your neighbor. You sit there and try to analyze theologically, what's the right way to love and what's the wrong way to love? And then we suffer paralysis by that analysis. Go and love. Go and do. He doesn't ask for any of that. He doesn't demand the extraordinary. He doesn't uh, demand uh, relocating like he did to the wilderness. He doesn't demand. A lot of times cults function this way. You know, you're in a cult when the, the leader is telling you, do what I do. Say what I say. I know we'll look at Paul and say, follow me as I follow Christ. That's a very, very specific thing. And that's a very an important thing because ultimately they're pointing you right to Jesus. They should never be exclusively pointing you to themselves. You look at some of the horrific things that's happened in certain cults where people have followed the leader to their death. He simply is saying, you don't have to necessarily do what I do. You don't have to go and follow the same uh, disciplines that I follow. You don't have to relocate to the wilderness like I have. But what he tells these private citizens, these soldiers, these tax collectors, is that the opportunities to bear fruit appear right in front of them every day. There's not some big grandiose thing you need to go do. There's not some big organization you necessarily need to go join. Look at your life right now and figure out what does repentance look like here? Relationships that I have. What does the fruit of repentance look like here? Relationships amongst family members. As we go into this new year, everybody loves, we love making these new year's resolutions. Let's make a resolution to genuinely repent in 2021. Let's make a resolution to say, I want my life to bear real fruit of repentance. And this is a repentance that is fully demonstrated. I want to take time to point out the difference between something really quickly. It's really easy for a lot of us when we're told about our sin or told about our own brokenness and our lack of repentance. It's easy to think that repentance is simply acknowledgement. In other words, yep, I know I do got to work on that. You're right. Well, you know, that is me. That's just me. That's who I am. And, and I know it's wrong, but I got God's still working on me. It's just who I am. It's just how I'm wired. It's just who he's kind of made me to be. Or I am my mother's daughter or I am my father's child or I am just like my grandmother. 
All these things that we kind of say, we don't realize we're subtly resting in and excusing, but we're still acknowledging it. There's a difference between acknowledging and being accountable. Acknowledgement, you don't have to do anything else but acknowledge. Yeah, you're right, I, I, said, I said that, I did that. I don't, I'm not lying about it, I'm telling the truth, that's who I am. That's mere acknowledgement. That isn't repentance. That isn't saying, I'm, that's not a, a true, for a lot of people, that is the extent to which an apology goes. Mere acknowledgement. I'm sorry, you're right, I did do that. I'm sorry, you're right, I need to do better. And that's it. But what accountability does, accountability says, I am taking account, I am taking responsibility. Taking responsibility isn't just acknowledging it. Taking responsibility is, here are the acts of repentance that I'm attaching to my acknowledgement. So I'm not just intellectually saying, yep, that exists. There's an, an emotional and a volitional response that says, I am broken and I feel bad about this, that it displeases God and that it's hurt you. And I am moved to act. I am moved to repent. That word repent in the Greek, this word metanoia, this, this change of mind. It's not just change of behavior, change of speech, change of saying certain things. It's a complete posture change. It's like, I see that, I acknowledge that, and I'm changing all the ways that it was even possible for me to be this way. That's what repentance is. That's what we're called to. So, so John the Baptist isn't setting forth this exhaustive program, a complete way to, to live for those who have undergone this baptism of repentance. He simply points out the first step they can take in a new direction by their repentant behavior by what they abstain from doing and what they choose to do, they will leave themselves open to wherever God will direct them next. So you may not know, like they didn't know, when the next advent will be. We may not know what's gonna happen in 2021. Lord knows we had no idea what was gonna happen in 2019 going into 2020, did we? And we've had the craziest five years of 2020 that you can imagine. We don't know what 2021 is gonna be. I can't tell you. God, God doesn't tell us exactly what to prepare for, exactly what to do. But one person who gave me advice years ago said, many times in our lives, we, we take a step and then we see a step. And then we take a step and then we see a step. And the first step for every believer is to work and have fruitful repentance in our lives. That's our step. Walk in a, in a way that shows fruitful repentance. What is the fruit of my repentance? What does that look like? If people can't say anything else about you, can they see what your rhythms of repentance look like? Because this is what God calls us to. So John presumes that those who are listening to him will keep asking this question as their circumstances change. When circumstances change, what should we do? Uh, maybe I'm in a better situation now. What should I do? Maybe I'm in a worse situation now. What should I do? I'm really, really hurting and I'm really, really sad and I'm really, really lonely. What should I do? What does the work of repentance look like here? I'm now on top of the world. I've got a new job. I just got married. I'm, I'm in a really good place. I'm healed. What should I do? What does the fruit of repentance still look like? That's always the first step. Later, the answers they hear may not come from the lips of a prophet, but from their own struggling hearts. That's where a lot of ours come from, from our own struggling hearts. 
We start to see, oh, wow, God is speaking to my heart and God is speaking to the areas where I'm not really showing real repentance and I'm convicted by it. Maybe I've heard a sermon or I'm reading scripture and and something is showing me that. So when you look at these folks, these newly washed people in the River Jordan, they have the obligation and the opportunity to bear fruit of repentance. And certainly these folks who received in the same way that these folks in the, in the Jordan had just been given that obligation, think of those of us who received a far greater baptism bestowed by Christ with his spirit and with his fire. We are expected to bear fruit as well. This is our opportunity. This is our obligation to do this, to do so in such a way that in the same way that John said it would be indicated right in front of us. This literal change of mind that determines how we live. So what opportunities for metanoia are right in front of us right now? What are those opportunities? To raise that question again, this time about ourselves. What should we do? So let me charge you to do this. Look at your life. Take real account of your life right now as you walk into this new year, as we prepare for 2021, take account of your life. Recognize the places where it is broken. With whom do you need to reconcile during this new year? Look at how you use power. Do you use it justly or are you part of the problem? With whom do you need to reconcile in this new year? Look at what you have. The most basic, look at the clothes in our closet, the food in your refrigerator, your checkbook, your stock portfolio. If you own two coats, if you possess uh, food in abundance, is it time for you to share? Not necessarily saying absolutely yes, but this is work to be done. With whom should I be sharing? With whom should I be showing that type of real repentance? The gospel identifies John's gruff and blunt demands as good news. Later it says, and he went on to share more good news with them. This isn't, this shouldn't be something that is like painstaking and begrudging for us. This is good news. These demands are targeted at us. And when we hear them in faith, we also recognize them as good news. They speak of the fruit that we can produce. So in this way uh, in which our faith produces fruit, then, then the world becomes different. And so do we. When we produce fruit this way, Our environment changes. The world changes. This itself is good news. Why? Because God is being put on display for people to see. So people begin to realize that Jesus is indeed active in the world. They begin to realize and and that realization takes over them, consoles them, challenges, uh, challenges them, and converts them because they see it in our lives. They see that kind of change, that kind of heart change that leads to real behavioral change. This new year, let us be a people that is about bearing fruit. Not new ways of saying things, not uh, new ways of, of, of having different spiritual disciplines alone. What does it mean to be about real justice in our own individual lives And then corporally in our community, this is the fruit that we're called to. 
There's not any piece of fruit from John that talks about how we read our Bible. Now, our reading of our Bible should be informing how we do this. But ultimately, what does it mean to bear fruit in our lives, in our society, in our community? May we take account of our lives this year as we prepare for the next, because we don't know when the second advent is coming, but this reparation work is our preparation work until Jesus returns. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts and you know that our hearts ask this question, what should we do? Even when we aren't using the words, what should we do? We are desperately trying to figure out what we should do. And God, so often when we hear the answer to that, or when we suspect the answer will be something that we don't want to do, we look for any reason, any excuse not to do it. Father, I pray that as we ask this question and as you answer it, that we would not respond the way some have, even in scripture. Later, we know at the end of this chapter, we see what happens to King Herod as he himself is called out for his own sin and what he purposes in his heart to do to ultimately lock up John the Baptist and then eventually have him killed. Lord, I pray that we would not have that heart posture, that we would not be so angry and so obsessed with holding on to our own power, to our own privilege, to our own comfort, so that we don't even want to think about giving that up for the sake of another, to the point where we're willing to, to kill the messenger because the message is not palatable to us. God, will you break that in us? Father, let this new year be a year that is categorized by new fruit of repentance, by a repentance that is demonstrated and not just declared, by, by, by repentance that is displayed and not just discussed. God, let this be something that is so overwhelming that other people who don't know you get a picture of who you are because they see repentance embodied in the flesh. Father, let us be that people now. Will you break us? Will you convict us in ways where repentance is necessary? And let that be our first step whenever we ask the question, what should we do? Because ultimately we know that this is what you are doing in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's receive the benediction of God together, this final blessing of God, this final promise of God, what he promises to do while we wait what he promises to do while we're in the waiting room. Listen to this blessing now. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God our Savior be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Happy New Year. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. 
please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.